You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Last week, 12 Senate Republicans joined Democrats to advance landmark legislation to provide federal protections for same-sex marriages, putting it on track to become law as a last act of bipartisanship in the lame-duck Congress. Right now, the right to same-sex marriage is the law, but only because of a 2015 Supreme Court decision, which many fear is now in jeopardy. Why? Because Justice Clarence Thomas told us so in the Dobbs decision, which took away the constitutional right to abortion. Joining me is a leading expert on marriage equality and LGBTQ rights, Catherine Frankie. She's director of Columbia Law School Center for Gender and Sexuality Law. Start by telling us what's motivating this push to get a same-sex marriage bill passed. Well, I think there are a few things. One is that many members of Congress were overwhelmed by calls from their constituents who were married and in same-sex couples uh, who were terrified after the Dobbs decision that their kids might be taken away, that their marriages might be dissolved. And what's interesting is the Respect for Marriage Act really came from within Congress itself as a response to constituent calls. It didn't come from some of the gay rights organizations around the country. So they really were trying to respond to the fear that they were hearing from their constituents who were afraid that their marriages would be dissolved and their kids taken from them. And tell us what in that Dobbs decision, was it Justice Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion that led to that fear? Or was it the decision itself? Well, you can always count on Clarence Thomas to say the quiet part out loud, but also the loud part even more loudly. And certainly there's nothing in the majority's opinion that would hinder the court from taking the next steps of finding a right to contraception is nowhere secured in the Constitution or the same with same-sex marriage, notwithstanding Justice Kavanaugh trying to lower the temperature a little bit in his concurrence and saying, oh, no, 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 we're just deciding abortion today. Actually, I'm not sure the other members of the majority hold that view. So that's really what frightened everyone was was Justice Thomas kind of underscoring what the potential for the Dobbs decision might hold for other issues around sex and sexuality. Explain what the Obergefell decision did. Well, in Obergefell, Justice Kennedy, writing for, for a majority of the court, found that there was a constitutional right for same-sex couples to marry if they were otherwise qualified for, uh, for a marriage license. And he did so really as a, as a matter of dignity. He, he landed the decision not in the explicit text of the Constitution, but in the kind of spirit of the Constitution to, to shun same-sex couples from the institution of marriage 
humiliates those couples and it humiliates and frightens their children. For kids who are in families with same-sex parents, uh, that those parents can't marry also sends a message to those children that their parents are somehow lesser than or um, not as dignified as um, their friends at school who have parents who are in different sex relationships and can marry. So Obergefell said, just as a kind of matter of constitutional fairness and dignity, same-sex couples should be allowed to marry, and states cannot ban same-sex couples from getting marriage licenses. Now, what would this legislation do? The legislation would not go all the way of Obergefell. So if the Supreme Court next term or two years from now decides to overrule Obergefell, the Respect for Marriage Act won't completely fix the problem. What it does do is it says states have to respect valid marriages from other states. So right now there are 35 states that have laws on the books that ban same-sex marriage. Those laws are not enforceable because of the Obergefell decision. But if the court reverses Obergefell, what happens to those laws in those 35 states? So in more than half the country, same-sex couples couldn't marry, but they could travel to, say, New York, California, or other states that do allow same-sex marriage, get legally married, and then go back to their home state and their home state would have to respect those marriages. Now, what the Respect for Marriage Act does specifically, it says, is those states that won't marry same-sex couples or interracial couples can't refuse to recognize the validity of their marriages if the reason that they're refusing to allow those folks to marry in their home state is because of the sex, race, national origin, Um, or ethnicity of the people in those marriages. So it also reaches interracial or interethnic marriages as well, uh, beyond same-sex marriages. So, you know, we have a long history in this country also of banning um, interracial marriages. And so the idea of this statute is to make sure that those laws don't come back in this more conservative era we're living in. The same-sex marriage bill, though, wouldn't require states to themselves license same-sex marriages? No, it would not. And that's what the Obergefell decision required, is that every state recognize same-sex marriages or issue marriage licenses to both different and same-sex couples. But the Respect for Marriage Act would not force states that have an objection to same-sex marriage to actually marry them themselves. They just have to respect valid marriages from other states. And the reason why is that it may be that Congress doesn't actually have the power to do that to require states to marry a range of people, including same-sex couples. There is specific language in the Constitution called the Full Faith and Credit Clause that says that states have to give full faith and credit to valid laws from other states. And so the idea is with this new Respect for Marriage Act is that this would fall under the same thing as, say, your nursing license or your driver's license. You know, when I drive cross-country, I don't have to get a new driver's license. Every time I hit the state line, every state recognizes my New York driver's license. Same should be the case with a marriage license. So many conservatives are against this. Republican Senator Ted Cruz said it's a threat to religious liberty. The IRS will target churches, religious universities, etc., that do not accept as a matter of faith same-sex marriage. Well, you know, it's interesting. Ted Cruz has a law degree. You would think he might actually read the bill. 
So <laughs> the version of the Respect for Marriage Act that is in the Senate and that was just voted on last week has a very broad religious exemption. So any religious institution, whether it's an actual church or a religious university or employer for that matter, is given an exemption from having to comply with this law. So that was part of the compromise that was struck in order to get 12 Republican senators to vote for the Respect for Marriage Act was the inclusion of a very, a fairly broad religious exemption that we didn't see in the House version of the bill. So if the Senate does pass this version that was voted on last week, it'll have to go back to the House before the end of this congressional session for them to pass it once again um, and approve this broad religious exemption. So I would uh, encourage Senator Cruz to actually read the law before making public statements about it. Same-sex marriage, as far as public opinion is concerned, it's come a long way since DOMA was signed. It's astonishing in so many respects that uh, same-sex marriage and gay rights are more popular in the United States and in the United States Congress than abortion rights are at this point, or even sex equality for that matter. There's also a very important piece of uh, lawmaking that's pending in the Senate that would finally ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, adding explicit sex equality language to the U.S. Constitution. And uh, we need a filibuster-proof majority of senators to approve that legislation. And we're about six or seven short at this point. But gay rights and same-sex marriage in particular is polling more favorably than our abortion rights or sex equality more generally. Um, And I, I think it's probably no mistake that this vote on the Respect for Marriage Act came on the heels of the most recent midterm election, where there's just so much hate and kind of off the charts, extreme right wing rhetoric coming out of so many members of the Republican Party who won in these midterms, that there's some members of the Republican Party who want to signal to the public, not all of us are as bigoted and hateful as some of the most extreme members of our party and voting for gay rights right now is a way to kind of turn down the temperature, I think, in the public's eyes of where the Republican Party stands in terms of these kinds of hot-button social justice issues. But do you think it's critical that this bill become law before January, before the new congressional Republicans take control? Well, yes, for several reasons. I think we've, we've had some pretty extreme people elected to the Senate, but the House is also going to flip with the new Congress. And I don't think we could get the Respect for Marriage Act through this new, more conservative Congress like we did with the Democratic-led Congress, although by a slim majority in this current congressional term. Going to the Equal Rights Amendment, would that take care of the uh, problem with restrictions on abortion in states? Well, including specific sex equality protections in the Constitution, could and should have the effect of clarifying a higher standard of scrutiny of sexually discriminatory laws like the ban on same-sex marriage, you know, but for the sex of the person you're going to marry, you would not have been denied a marriage license is the way we would think about it. But including the ERA in the Constitution would not only fix the same-sex marriage problem and render bans on same-sex marriage unconstitutional, but so too some other fundamentally important Supreme Court decisions that dealt with gay rights, including Lawrence versus Texas from 2003, 
where the Supreme Court said it was unconstitutional to criminalize sex between two people of the same sex. So if we had the ERA in the Constitution, sex equality protections in the Constitution, states couldn't recriminalize same-sex sex if this radical Supreme Court reverses Lawrence versus Texas along with Obergefell. So there are a number of ways in which the ERA sex equality protections would include protections for sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination as well. Anti-abortion advocates who've been pushing laws through states, have they been set back a little bit by what happened in the midterms where, you know, states, for example, Kentucky, refused to vote for a law that would outlaw abortion? Absolutely. I th- we have known for a long time that abortion rights were supported by a broad majority of people across the country, and it's just because of gerrymandering that we have these conservative majorities running the state legislatures, and they've been able to pass these anti-abortion measures. But seeing abortion on the ballot the way it was in so many states in early November and have all of the anti-abortion measures go down confirms what we thought we knew, which is that those kinds of restrictions on access to the full range of reproductive health care are not what the American people want, certainly not what a majority of the American people want. And it also had the effect of taking down some of the more radical right members of the Republican Party who were running in those midterm elections. And so for that reason, I think we're seeing across the country, the Republican Party candidates looking at the next election, kind of regrouping and thinking, to what degree do they want to center attacks on abortion rights in their campaigns and platforms? since that was a losing proposition this time around. Thanks for being on the show, Catherine. That's Catherine Frankie, Director of Columbia Law School's Center for Gender and Sexuality Law. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
Texas has transported more than 13,000 migrants to New York, D.C., and Chicago since April. Now the state has begun transporting migrants to Philadelphia. Governor Greg Abbott sent the buses to Democratic-led cities as a way to maximize exposure over what he says is inaction by the Biden administration over the high numbers of migrants crossing on the southern border. Now Abbott is stepping up his rhetoric. Abbott is describing the record number of migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border as an invasion. And Texas will deploy military armored personnel carriers along its border with Mexico as part of a plan to repel undocumented migrants trying to enter the United States. My guest is immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland Knight. Leon, why is Governor Abbott using this invasion language? So this is a creative way of getting around the problem of United States versus Arizona, which was the 2012 Supreme Court decision where the court ruled that states basically can't take immigration enforcement matters into their own hands and pass laws, even if they're theoretically supplementing federal immigration laws. The court said, no, look, you have to let the federal government enforce immigration law and they get broad authority to develop the manner in which that's done. And so now what Governor Abbott has said is, fine, we're not going to start passing a bunch of state immigration enforcement laws. What we're going to do is take the clause of the Constitution, which says that the federal government is entrusted with defending the states against an invasion, and say that the federal government is not defending the states against an invasion, hence we can defend ourselves against an invasion. And... By doing that, the idea is that the state of Texas could deploy National Guard resources to try to basically create what ICE does, which is deportation of people from the United States into Mexico. Now, the problem with that is if you interpret the Constitution in terms of its original meaning, what it meant at the time, which is something that certainly most conservatives say that they're supposed to do, well, nobody would have thought that the federal government had a duty to defend the United States from immigrants seeking refuge because that was the first hundred years of the state of affairs of America. So from the late 1700s till the Chinese Exclusion Act in the late 1800s, we had a hundred years of basically people coming to America without any immigration law whatsoever. So there's no way anybody could say that the framers would consider immigrants entering America as an invasion. And so that's why it's very unlikely that this definition, this new definition of invasion, is actually going to play out in any kind of productive manner. So it's just another ploy by Texas to bring attention to the immigration issue. Correct. And maybe they can win a lower court injunction. Maybe they can even win a Fifth Circuit injunction. But I do think by the time this were to get to the Supreme Court, They would say, wait a second, state of Texas, you can't just start having your own military, having your own interactions with Mexico, because this can lead down a very, very slippery slope, especially when there really isn't an invasion going on. And what's going on instead is what you feel is an insufficient attempt at stopping foreign nationals from entering the United States. Texas has been busing immigrants to... Chicago, New York, and D.C., they've started now busing them to Philadelphia. Is this helping with their so-called immigration crisis? 
Well, it certainly doesn't reduce the number of people entering the state of Texas. That we've seen from the numbers. The numbers continue to go up. And so even last month, we had more numbers than in previous months. And so if the goal of these busings is to somehow deter people from coming from the southern border into the state of Texas, that's not happening in any way, shape, or form. And obviously, that's not going to happen because you have a lot of irregular global situations going on, whether they be in Cuba or whether they be in Haiti or whether they be in Nicaragua. Now in Venezuela, we've seen a, a reduction in the number of people entering because there's this new program that allows them to enter legally. So that's not lowering numbers, but it is lowering the numbers on the southern border. But the point is, that's not what's happening. So the effort here really is one that's designed to provoke people in other jurisdictions to try to get their leaders to take the problem of border crossing and the southern border more seriously. So that's the intent of this. I don't know yet in the three or four months that this has been in operation that we've seen a level of success to this, especially as people are starting to understand more and more that the way to deal with this is a transportation issue. It's not really a homelessness crisis or an immigrant integration crisis. You don't have to do any of that. You just literally have to take the person who's arrived in your area and move them on to the location they were going to try to get to anyway. If you did that, you resolved the problem. And I think as more jurisdictions are figuring this out, this is going to become less and less of a deterrent or even irritant or whatever the goal is. It's going to be less of that because people are going to understand how to deal with it. I'm surprised that no one has sued Texas over this. Well, I think you will see lawsuits in jurisdictions where they are absolutely unable to handle this. And maybe the theory would be that he should be given some notice about doing it. But really, at the end of the day, anybody can pay for a bus ticket for anybody else. So it's not really the state of Texas isn't necessarily doing anything illegal to the extent that it's paying for a bus ticket for a person who's willing to take that bus. From that perspective, you really can't sue anybody for anything. But if there's any kind of deception going on or if there's any kind of effort that the states can show, is it somehow guided to coerce the people on the bus or something? Maybe then they could come up with something, but, but I think that's why you haven't seen the lawsuits because in the end, if the bus ticket is being purchased, it doesn't matter whether it's the family member or the state government doing it as long as it's all voluntary. Are migrants at the border at the peak right now? Yeah, right now we have certainly the highest number. Uh, you know, we're over 2 million this year. There are debates about what this over 2 million number means because there's two sort of differences in terms of past numbers. The first issue is, well, how many of these people that are counted in these 2 million encounters, quote-unquote, are repeat offenders where what happens is because Title 42 is still in effect and still requires the government to push people out or at least did before this recent decision, which is given a sort of phase-out period to Title 42, which we'll talk about in a second, there's a lot of repeat encounters, and the question is how do you count those? That's number one, whether you count that as the same person or different people, obviously. And then the second issue is to what are you comparing it to? Are you comparing this to a world where in the past we didn't know how many people were coming across, so we never got an accurate account. We used to have far, far less border agents, we didn't have all of this fence that we now have. 
We didn't have all the drone technology, et cetera. So now the border is completely different in that we know who's coming across very, very well to the numbers, to the detail. So, so of course it's going to be higher than it's ever been. But the question is, is that really higher than it's ever been because now you're actually counting these people, whereas before you never counted these people in the first place. So those are the debates that go on. But certainly 2 million people or 2 million encounters coming across the southern border is not an optimal way for anybody to manage their immigration system. You would want, and we've seen this now with the examples of Ukraine and Venezuela, when you create legal pathways for people to enter, people use them. They don't use the illegal pathways. And so the question is how through a mix of deterrence, but also proper channels to come in, can we create a system? And I, I mean, it would be great if we could get some engagement from Congress on this, but to create a system that told people, look, we have a fair, compassionate and just system in America, but you have to follow it. You can't take matters into your own hands. And so if we could build that structure, that would be the number one deterrent to get people out of the southern border. Now, you mentioned Title 42, which is the Trump-era policy that allows U.S. border officials to expel migrants because of COVID-19. So a federal judge last week vacated Title 42, but the order stayed through late December. What kind of an effect will this have on the border? Well, as Title 42 starts getting de-implemented, and yes, the judge ruled that Title 42 is now arbitrary and capricious in light of, you know, the current ending, basically, of the COVID crisis. It's not that you, you need to have Title 42 anymore because of vaccination and outdoor processing and other public health measures. You don't have an ability to show that there's a need for Title 42, and the Title 42 can be adjudicated, basically, there's two parts of the ruling. The Title 42 is reviewable by the courts, and that's a question that I think a higher court will have to review, and in terms of what deference you give Title 42, but also upon doing this review, there's no longer any public health justification supporting the exclusion of foreign nationals due to the COVID-19 crisis because of, again, outdoor processing, vaccination, other public health measures. So from that standpoint, if Title 42 is actually eliminated, and there's a problem because there's another court in the Fifth Circuit that's working on their own injunction requiring keeping Title 42 in effect. So there's going to have to be this back and forth sort of dueling injunctions that get resolved by the Supreme Court. But in any case, if this is phased out, then what will likely happen is a return to the Obama and early Trump confusion about, well, we know what we do with single adults coming across the border. We place those people into what are called expedited removal proceedings, and we keep them detained until we decide whether they qualify for asylum or not. That part is pretty easy. We know what we do with unaccompanied kids. We put them in Department of Health and Human Services shelters and then with adult sponsors while their removal proceedings are pending. And then the question becomes, what do you do with families? And so... Previously, the what do you do with families answer was some families were being excluded because of Title 42 and other families were being let in. Now you probably have to let in all of these families into the United States while their asylum claims are pending because the alternative is to split up the families, which is what nobody wants to do anymore in this administration at least, 
after having seen what occurred during the Trump administration. And, and detaining them is also not permitted under the Flores Settlement Agreement. So your only option is for these families to now let them all into the United States as opposed to excluding them, which is what's been happening under Title 42. Democrats are looking to get some sort of amnesty for illegal immigrants through Congress in the lame duck session before they lose the House to the Republicans. Does that seem wishful thinking because they'd need to get, you know, Republicans on board? To me, this is very reminiscent of the state of affairs in 2010, which is in 2010, what happens is you had had for two years after Barack Obama was elected president, you had President Obama, you had a, a Democratic House of Representatives under Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and you had a 58, 57, 59, sometimes 60 vote Senate under Harry Reid. And for two years, nothing was done on immigration reform. And so the, the election happened and people realized, oh, wait a second, we've literally done nothing on immigration reform of any kind. What do we do now? And so they had a lame duck vote on the Dream Act. And it failed because no Republican supported it. And so this seems pretty much exactly like what's going to happen again. And from that perspective, I don't see a way forward in this Congress. What I do see is maybe in a subsequent Congress, they are going to need to put together a legislation that basically comes up with a way of addressing all of these asylum claims in an orderly manner, but like we talked about, one where people have a legitimate, credible opportunity to come, but also can't just take matters into their own hands and arrive at the southern borders. And in exchange for that, then deal with some of the people here who don't have status. And I think there is a framework to do that, but I don't think it's a framework that's amenable to a lame duck session. The future or expected House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy has repeatedly said there'll be no amnesty with a Republican House. And are we expecting legislation from this House, or are we expecting investigations from this House? Well, certainly there's going to be a start of plenty of hearings on the border, because just a majority gives you the ability to have these hearings. Now, I do think they wanted to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. I don't think they're going to be able to do that with the narrow margins that they have. I think there will be a few members of the House of Representatives that don't want to go through this route of impeaching people because they're sort of more centrist people that don't want to portray themselves as firebrands. They come in as they just start impeaching people. But I do think that as the dust settles and as people start to have this debate about what to do vis-a-vis DACA, where you're going to have a Supreme Court decision that comes out that may invalidate DACA at some point, and then what to do vis-a-vis the border. I just think whether it's in this Congress coming up or a future Congress, there's going to be this confluence of events because neither of those things are going away. And eventually the solution will become manifestly apparent to everyone. It's not, it's not something where there's going to be another solution. People will understand, okay, we have to address this issue of these DACA uh, youth that have been relying upon this program for many, many years now, and we have to address the situation at the border. Let's put them together in a fair and reasonable way. And the thing is this, which is, I think for Democrats who have been reluctant to address this issue at the border, they're going to have to take stock and remember 
that by the end of the Trump administration, sort of they had been fumbling around with the border issue for four years, they were about to be given full blessing by the Supreme Court to implement Remain in Mexico on their own. And so if there's a way to, for a future Republican administration to basically block every single asylum seeker through a far less humane, administratively created Remain in Mexico program than through a statutorily created one where there are actual rights and conditions and other things, access to counsel and due process put into a statute, I think it behooves Democrats to really think about actually making a deal on these terms. Because otherwise, there will still be a Remain in Mexico program. It's not like Republicans won't reinstitute it, but it will be one that will be far less amenable to what Democrats have wanted in regards to the immigration system. Thanks for being on the show, Leon. That's immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.